Well, if you're brand new tonight, we have been in a study, really the last nine or ten weeks or so, we began a study uh, through the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights, and the last several weeks in particular, we've been looking at the seven churches of Revelation in uh, Revelation chapters two and three, and so tonight we come to the final church uh, in Revelation chapter three, the church at Laodicea, so we'll be in chapter 3, verses 14 through 22 in our time together tonight. And I do want to say this once more just by way of introduction. Uh, Each of the churches that are mentioned in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, these were seven literal churches in Asia Minor. And yet each church really is unique in its circumstances, its situation, And at the same time, these are seven churches that are also figurative or even representative of churches in every passing generation. And so though these are seven postcards, brief letters from Jesus to these churches, there is a message for us that's just as relevant as anything else that you'll read this week. And we've seen how each of these churches really were dealing with a particular crisis. Uh, Tonight, the church at Laodicea and the last of these seven churches is a church that's dealing with the crisis of what I'm calling indifference. It's the lukewarm church. Uh, In fact, this particular letter, uh, just like these other letters, really represent this idea of just how important the church is from God's point of view. The fact that Jesus is writing, speaking directly to these churches, intimately aware of everything that's going on within these churches, reminds us of the fact that he loves the church and the church is very important uh, from God's point of view. The church is intended to be salt, Light, the Apostle Paul said that the church is the pillar and ground of all truth, and God very much intends for his church to be uh, an agent or a vehicle of the kingdom in the world today. And we tend to think that the most important things are happening in global governments, but from God's perspective, the most important thing that's really happening on the planet is what's happening in the local church. It's what's taking place in the lives of believers. Jesus said, I am building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So each of these churches are dealing with unique crises. Jesus addresses that while at the same time, he's reminding the church of something about his character. And each of the letters will begin with an emphasis on his character, which means that the answer to the church's problems is a greater, more intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, in your life as a believer, in our life corporately as a body, uh, there is nothing that we'll ever experience in our personal lives or in our corporate life that takes God by surprise. And there's nothing that we will never be able to meet in the power that he himself supplies So when we oftentimes find ourselves between a rock and a hard place, we get into a problem, uh, our first line of defense is, I want to be out of this situation. 
And it may not be so much removing us from the situation that the Lord is concerned with as much as it is reminding us about something concerning his character in the midst of that situation. And in that way, we come to know him in a much greater way. Now, this seventh letter to the church at Laodicea is perhaps the most stern of all the letters to the seven churches. And unlike the previous church at Philadelphia, where Jesus really had nothing negative to say, to the church at Laodicea, Jesus will have nothing positive to say. And there are a lot of Bible teachers who point out the fact that this Laodicean church may in fact illustrate what the church will be like at the time of Christ's second coming. In fact, our modern context here in America, we as the church may be more Laodicean than we realize. And as we'll see here in just a moment, these Laodiceans thought that they had much when in reality they had very little. They had possessions, but they had no power. They had wealth, but they had no witness. Instead of influencing the culture, the culture had influenced them. Instead of being passionate, they were passive. So if a Philadelphian church is a church that we want to emulate, a Laodicean church would be a church we would want to avoid. And it serves as an illustration of a church that's plagued by indifference. And the word that Jesus is going to use to describe this church is is this word lukewarm. They were lukewarm, which means to be at room temperature. The best illustration I can think of of something that's lukewarm, say you get a nice piping hot cup of coffee. And you're sipping on that, and you set it down for a little while, and you get distracted, and you come back before you realize it, you pick up that cup of coffee to take a sip of it, and it is lukewarm or tepid, it's room temperature, and immediately the first reaction you have is to want to spit that out, right? Unless you're Starbucks, and then you want to sell it and start a whole new craze, but (laughs) cold brew, I I have yet to really see the big deal. I like hot coffee. But I will agree, even cold coffee is better than lukewarm coffee. Well, let's look and see what Jesus actually says to the church at Laodicea. Look at verse 14 there in Revelation chapter 3. The Lord says to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. And you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. And so because you're lukewarm and neither cold or hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. 
And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is a profile of a church that really is facing a crisis of indifference. Now, just by way of background, the city of Laodicea itself was located roughly 45 miles southeast of uh, the city of Philadelphia, about 100 miles t- uh, um, east and south uh, to, the, uh, to the city of Ephesus also. Geographically, Laodicea was in the Lycus Valley along with other cities that are mentioned in Scripture, such as the city of Hierapolis or the city of Colossae. And there are really a number of interesting historical features about the city that kind of provide insight into Jesus' words to the church here in this passage. Uh, For one thing, the city of Laodicea was located near an area of hot springs, even though it didn't have a really good supply of water itself. So what that meant was that water had to be piped into the city via an aqueduct that was roughly six miles long. So when the water from those hot springs left those springs, it was piping hot. But by the time it traveled down the Roman aqueduct to the city of Laodicea, it was no longer hot, neither was it cold, but it was tepid. And so the citizens of the city actually had to boil the water, uh, to purify the water. uh, So they had a real water problem. Also there in the city of Laodicea was a school of medicine that produced a remedy for weak eyes. The city was also known for raising sheep that produced a soft black wool that was woven into expensive cloth and even um, carpets. But perhaps more than anything, the city became, eventually became known for its wealth Because as a city, it lay at a strategic intersection of three main thoroughfares and had really grown into a pretty impressive financial district under Roman rule. It was home to bankers and traders, wealthy citizens of the empire. And so the church of Laodicea, it was founded along with some other churches there of those cities in the Lycus Valley during Paul's two-year ministry in the city of Ephesus. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 19. Uh, The apostle Paul considered Laodicea to be a mission field. In fact, you can even read in Colossians chapter 4 verse 16, uh, the apostle Paul says that he had even written a letter to the Laodicean believers. Many Bible scholars believe that the, the epistle to the Ephesians was also the same as the epistle that was sent to the Laodiceans. So by the time the Apostle John writes the book of Revelation, many years had passed, the spiritual condition of the church in Laodicea had deteriorated. We might could say that they had become stagnant. The believers had become just like the people or the culture around them. They had the same proud attitude that the city had reflected. They thought that their wealth was proof of God's favor. And worst of all, they had no personal awareness of their sin or their corporate sin. They didn't think that they needed to repent because in their minds, things were just fine. But just like he does with all the other churches, Jesus is looking into their situation and he gives them a true assessment of their situation. It's the difference of being a thermometer versus being a thermostat. You know the difference. 
So instead of being a thermometer which merely registers temperature, Jesus intends for his church to be a thermostat that regulates temperature. So a thermometer reflects the temperature, a thermostat affects the temperature. He doesn't want the church to be a thermometer that registers the cultural temperature. No, he wants his church to be a thermostat, men and women, that affects the temperature. And so here you have these believers who were lukewarm. It means they were not too cold, they were not too hot, they're too warm to freeze, but too cold to boil. They're lukewarm, tepid. And keep in mind who Jesus is speaking to in these verses. Uh, He's not speaking to those who were cold and hardened in their sin uh, without a relationship with him. Neither is he speaking to those who are fervently, passionately serving him. So this is not a dead church like the church at Sardis, but neither is it a church that's on fire for his cause. Kind of reminds me of a story I read about a fellow in a small town who was really never known to go to church. Everybody in the town called him Uncle George. And while everyone else was in church there in this little town on Sunday, Uncle George would sit in front of the local store and he would just whittle. He'd just whittle on a piece of stick. Well, one day the church caught fire. And because it was a little town, the town didn't have a fire department, so they had to form a bucket brigade. And even Uncle George pitched in. In fact, he was at the head of the line throwing water there on the flames. And the pastor said, this is the first time I ever saw you at church, George. To which Uncle George replied, yep, but this is the first time I ever seen the church on fire. (laughs) I read that and I thought, you know something? I wonder how many people have dismissed the church altogether because they've never seen the church on fire. Jesus is speaking to those in the church who've become self-satisfied, half-hearted in terms of their relationship with him. Again, keep in mind, Ephesus was a church that left its first love. Well, now here you have a church that has completely loved other things in the Lord's place. So a few things about the church we need to keep in mind. The first would be the indifference of the church, and that's explained there in verses 14, 15, and 16. And notice that their indifference really is seen in contrast to what's revealed about the Lord's character. Down in verse 15, Jesus says to the church, I know your works. Their lives, their ministry was under his careful scrutiny. There's nothing that went unnoticed. And these Laodiceans thought that they were one thing when Jesus says they were entirely something else. He knows them better than they know themselves. Same thing's true for me. The same thing's true for you. And so their indifference is seen in contrast to his character. The truth of who he is, this should have been sufficient motivation for the church. Who does he say that he is? Who is it that he's reminding these believers? What is it about his character that he's pointing their attention to? Well, notice he refers to himself as the amen. It's a unique title used just this one time in Scripture to refer to the Lord Jesus. It refers to him as being one who is unchangeable. Uh, It's the New Testament Greek equivalent of a statement in Hebrew in the Old Testament, Isaiah 65, where God is described as being the God who is truth. 
Amen is the Hebrew word for truth. It speaks of that which is dependable, what's trustworthy, what's true. And so when you see this used in the New Testament, it means even so or so be it. So whenever you say amen, what you're saying is so be it. You're identifying with the fact that a statement that you've just heard is truth. Amen. So be it. And so Jesus, when he refers to himself as the amen, here's, he's saying what I say is always true and it's always reliable. This is something that we can always be certain of. And then notice that he refers to himself as the faithful and true witness. That means he will not deny the truth. He will not dilute the truth. He will not distort the truth. He's getting ready to speak truth that would be difficult for these Laodiceans to hear, but it's medicine that they needed. And then notice that he's the beginning of God's creation there, the end of verse 14. What does that mean? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Jesus is a created being. A lot of the cults want to deny the deity of Jesus Christ and say, well, the Bible says that Jesus is a created being. That is not what the Bible says. What he's saying here, beginning, this is the word arche in Greek. It means source or origin. So when Jesus is referring to him as the beginning of God's creation, he's referring to himself as the source, the origin of God's creation. All of creation has its ultimate origin in him as creator. He is God. It is in him alone that we live, we move, we have our being. John says this much in John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Or Colossians chapter 1 verse 16, by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether it be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Listen to this, all things were created through him and for him. You see the triune God at work in Genesis chapter 1, even though the doctrine of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, this is something that is progressively revealed throughout redemptive history, but you see it in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God, the Father, he's there, created the heavens and the earth. Oh, the earth was without form and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. And God said, there he is. There's the son of God. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. The word was God. So Jesus is not a created being. Jesus is the creator. Now listen to me. The fact that he's the amen. The fact that he's the faithful and true witness. The fact that he is the origin of creation. This ought to be enough to wake up a sleepy and drowsy congregation of believers. Because it's a reminder of the omnipotence of the one who calls us by name. The one who calls us his own. The one who is my Lord and my master and my savior. So instead of placing their confidence in this Christ, the passage reveals that these Laodiceans had placed their confidence in other areas. And other things had become more important to them rather than a close personal relationship with the amen, 
the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. They're going through motions. They're giving God lip service while their hearts were far away from him. So they're lukewarm. And so that's something that's really sickening in concept. So look at what Jesus says there to the church, verses 15 and 16. He says, you're neither cold or hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. But because you're lukewarm and not cold or hot, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. So an indifferent church is something that makes Jesus sick. It's something he takes very seriously. Which, by the way, if the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, wouldn't you think that the greatest sin would be to not do that? We tend to want to classify sins in terms of their seriousness according to our human rationale. But really every other sin is just the nuclear fallout associated with the one greater sin, not loving God. So to see a church that's void of passion, that reflects the value system of the world rather than affecting the world's value system, this is something that's repulsive that Jesus says. You ever witness something so much so that it just made you sick in the pit of your stomach, just bothered you. Jesus said that he would rather they be cold or hot as opposed to them just being lukewarm. Now, some people have a hard time understanding that. How could he say that he'd rather the church be cold rather than indifferent as if that were better? I'll tell you why. Because a dead church can be resurrected. A dead church, more often than not, realizes that there's an issue. It can be challenged, it can be awakened, it can be revitalized. But what do you do with a congregation that assumes everything is just fine? There's not much you can do with them. The only thing Jesus seems to do is to spit them out and to start again. So someone says, well, how does the church kind of become lukewarm like this? How does it become indifferent? James Boyce says there's only one explanation for this. The church had drifted so far from Christ that they had lost the joy of their salvation. And so you become indifferent when you lose the joy of your salvation and other things begin to take or occupy that place in your heart that only love for Jesus should occupy. Now, how had this lukewarmness manifested itself? Well, you see this in verses 17, 18, and 19, notice the instructions that are given to the church. Again, Jesus says, you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I don't need anything, but you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So he's got some words of correction here for the church, as well as any church that would yawn with indifference. And that correction involves change in the area of values. You say, I am rich. In other words, their wealth, their prosperity, this had become the source of their boasting. This had become the source of their confidence. They reveled in their wealth. They reveled in their know-how. They reveled in their presumed circumstances. Surely the favor of God and the blessing of God was with them because of their prosperity. Right? Listen to what Warren Wiersbe says. He says, perhaps we have here a hint of why this church declined spiritually. They had become proud of their ministry and had begun to measure things by human standards instead of by spiritual values. (laughs) 
So the metric of their success became their wealth, their affluence, their assets in their minds. They didn't need anything else. And so this affluence then fostered a sense of complacency, indifference, which by the way, there's often a direct correlation between affluence and indifference. When we have nothing, we tend to rely on God. I definitely can't rely on my bank account because I ain't got nothing in there. God, you're going to have to get me through. When we're experiencing problems, crisis in life, we've come to the end of our reserves. We turn to God. We look to Him in faith. But as long as we have some men and women with deep pockets, as long as our asset-to-debt ratio is to our advantage, you know, we just need to talk to the right people. But you see, before you know it, affluence can lead to the adoption of a wrong value system. And a lukewarm Christian values the wrong things. A lukewarm church values the wrong things. And Jesus says, you've got all this stuff for which you're proud, but you don't realize the seriousness of your true condition. Listen to these sobering words. He says, you're wretched, pitiable. Poor, blind, naked. I mean, you won't find a more devastating assessment of a local assembly anywhere in the Bible like this short sentence. They they thought they were well off, so much so that they would be the envy of the world, but the Lord says they're actually to be pitied. They were materially wealthy, but they were spiritually destitute. You know what it kind of reminds me of? You remember the... uh, I guess it's the little short story, The Emperor's New Clothes, Hans Christian Andersen. You remember that story? You've got these two guys who are just hucksters, but they basically pretend to be tailors, and they convinced the king that they could weave invisible garments. And so because he's so vain about his appearance, the king actually bought into their scheme. He took off all of his clothes, naked as a jaybird, put on the invisible suit that they had made for him. He then walked in a royal procession down the street to show off the crowd his new clothes. And all of his subjects were shocked, to say the least. And nobody had the courage to tell the king the truth but one little boy in the crowd who said to the top of his lungs, look at the king, he's as naked as the day he was born. You know, the Laodicean church is like that king, thinking that they were rich, thinking that they were arrayed in fine garments. Jesus is actually confronting them with the truth of their shame. And by the way, as long as they were comparing themselves to the next man, they looked fine. But you see, they forget, we don't compare ourselves by ourselves. Who is it that we look to? We look to the Lord of the church. It's Jesus we look to. And I'll be honest, I've got to compare my life to the life of Jesus because he's the one in whose image I want to be conformed and molded and shaped. So further instruction was given in the area of their virtues. Verse 18, Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. The idea is they needed the gold and the garments that Jesus would supply as they turned to him with their whole heart. And the fact that this gold is refined by fire, notice the emphasis there, 
This suggests that the church needed some affliction to get out of a place of complacency. Now you compare this to, say, the church at Smyrna. We saw that the crisis they were facing was a crisis of real persecution. The churches that really seem to be struggling with pain and affliction, it's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't really have any words of rebuke for these churches because they're not really complacent. But to the church that really isn't experiencing any affliction, but it's very complacent, Jesus doesn't really have any words of praise. So pain always has this way of reshuffling our priorities. The scripture says that the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. And part of his discipline in our lives uh, as his children involves him stirring up the nest whenever we get too comfortable in, in the world. And so refined gold, this is a picture all throughout Scripture of a life that's been purified or it's in the process of being purified from sin. Faith as it's being strengthened. This is what Job says in verse 10 of chapter 23 of God. He says, he knows the way that I take and when he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. In other words, Job says, I know that he's doing something in my life. I don't know what it is, but I trust that he knows what it is. So the church here really needed, and Jesus is saying they're going to be in, under some discipline, some divine discipline, because he has a purpose for their lives. And then notice he expresses his concern in the area of their vision. At the end of verse 18, he tells the church to receive salve in order to anoint their eyes. Again, keep in mind what you know about the city of Laodicea. It had a school of medicine there, a product from that school of medicine was this particular eye salve that was true of the city, produced in the city. Well, Jesus is saying, I've got some eye salve that I want you to apply to your eyes so that you can truly see your situation from my perspective. So this is the counsel of receiving spiritual vision. They needed spiritual vision, spiritual eyesight. They needed to have the spiritual blinders removed. They needed to be able to see their sin and complacency and indifference for what it is. It's, it's the sight that enables us to come to Christ. That's the kind of sight that Jesus is describing here. God, by means of his spirit, only God can open up our eyes to see the glory and majesty of Jesus. You know what the indifferent church needs? It doesn't need another program. It needs a new vision of who Jesus is. And notice, not even a new vision for ministry. That's certainly involved. We need to have a vision for ministry, but before we'll ever have a real vision of ministry, we've got to have a vision of the Lord of the church. Our minds and our hearts need to be enlarged with just the greatness of who he is. And so look at verse 19. Jesus says, lest they doubt his love, he says, those whom I love, I reprove, I discipline. He says, so be zealous and repent. That word zealous means to be brought to a boil. The very thing that they were not, they needed to be heated up if they were going to please Christ and be effective witnesses for Jesus. But it began with them recapturing an enlarged vision of who he is. Now, notice one last thing here. Notice, notice the Lord's invitation to the church. It's an invitation, first of all, to open. I know you've probably referenced verse 20 
You've used this as an evangelistic verse. How many of you ever heard Revelation 3.20 often used as an evangelistic verse, uh, you know, as you're, you're sharing your faith? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus says, I'm standing at the door. I'm knocking. If anyone will open up, receive me, I'll have fellowship with him. And that's a good verse. But it's interesting that Jesus is not speaking to the world here. He's speaking to the church. <laughs> He's on the outside of the church wanting to get in the church. Now think about that. He's standing at the door. He's knocking. It's the door of the church. He's on the outside wanting in. There's a poor man who lived in a poor part of town who went to a big, well-to-do downtown church. And after the service, the man met the pastor. The pastor noticed his shabby clothes and his tattered coat. And because it was the place where there were a lot of well-to-do and affluent people, the pastor felt like he needed to tell this man. So he says, you know, you need to go home and pray and see if you really ought to come back here. About three weeks went by. The man hadn't come back. One day in town, the pastor happened to come across the fellow, and he asked him, he said, did you go home and do what I told you to do? The man says, I sure did. I went home and asked Jesus if I ought to come back to your church, and he told me I didn't need to. In fact, he told me that he hadn't even been there in 20 years. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. How often Jesus may be on the outside of the church wanting to come in. When he comes in, let me tell you, lives are impacted. When he comes in, priorities are rearranged. Worship is powerful. Preaching, teaching, fellowship, it's anointed. Petty things fade from view in our hearts and lives, when Jesus comes in, we have fellowship with Jesus. And that's not just true of the church corporately, but that's true in your life individually. The things you get so worked up about, the things that you allow to rob you of joy, that's exactly the enemy's strategy in your life. He wants little things to rob you of joy and intimacy with Jesus so that you'll be distracted, sidelined, ineffective, and even indifferent spiritually. So how do you fight against that? It's what the writer of Hebrews says, looking unto Jesus. May we ever be looking unto Jesus. And ultimately, notice how this is really an invitation to overcome. Verse 21, verse 22, the Lord says to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So it's an incentive here. And the incentive is to be an overcomer with Jesus Christ. A lukewarm, indifferent believer is overcome by the cares of the world. But one who's living in fellowship with Jesus, a hot-hearted believer, overcomes the world. And I don't know about you, but I want to be in that last category. So I wrap this up. What is a Laodicean condition? If we were to summarize it. It's when you think you're prospering because of God's blessing, but in reality, you're spiritually impoverished. It's when you're self-sufficient. You think you've got all you need, but really, you're empty. It's when you think things are fine in your life spiritually, but you've been blinded to your own pride. 
And someone says, well, how can I know if I'm lukewarm? How can a Christian know if I'm lukewarm? I think we honestly need to really examine ourselves in some key areas. I think first our concern for personal holiness, worship, sacrificial giving, devotion to God's word, intercessory prayer, sharing the gospel. These are just some quick areas that we could check just to kind of see, okay, well, where am I at? My prayer is that God would keep us from indifference. As we look to the Lord Jesus, Jesus says, I'm telling you, behold, church, I'm standing at the door. I'm knocking. I want to have fellowship with you. I want you to experience joy, the joy of fellowship. I don't know if you can see this behind me on the screen. Maybe you've seen a depiction of this famous painting. It's by a painter by the name of Holman Hunt. That's only partial, a partial uh, view of the painting. Maybe you've seen a, a sort of a depiction of this. The original painting is in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. But in this painting, you've got Jesus standing by a closed door. Hunt actually painted this in the mid-1800s, 1850, I think it was. But Jesus is standing by a closed door. There are vines that kind of cover the side post, the lintel. His hand is poised there in the air. It's lifted up. It's ready to knock on the door. It said that there was a little girl who stood there with her father looking at this picture very seriously, and she was deeply moved by what she saw. And she finally asked her dad this question, Daddy, did they ever let him in? I think that's a very profound question, don't you? Did they ever let him in? What about the Laodicean church? Did the church ever let him in? I wish that I could say they did. But all we know is that Laodicea is a city that's in ruins, and there are ruins of buildings. There's no church there in the city of Laodicea. But the question at hand for us is this question, will we let him in? And that's an important question. Would you stand with me as we pray tonight? <clears throat> with heads bowed and eyes closed, the Lord Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. I will eat with him and he with me. And our Father and our God, may that be true of our lives, Lord, that we open the door. We don't want to be indifferent, Lord. We don't want to be an island of plenty surrounded by an ocean of need and be indifferent to all of that need. We think about our city. Lord, we, we are a city that is lost. People are lost. They need Jesus. Our neighbors, people we work with, people we live beside, people we pass every day. Lord, may we value what heaven values. And Lord, we know that the key to effective witness is, is having an enlarged vision of who you are. That's where it begins. Not a clever methodology that we could teach. 
not a strategy that we could come up with. All of that is well and good. But Lord, it begins with an enlarged vision of Jesus Christ. He is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the firstborn of all creation. And the world needs to know him. So Lord, take these truths tonight. May you seal them up in our hearts and lives and conform us, shape us more and more into the image of Jesus. And we pray all of this in his precious name and all God's people said together, amen.